This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. to 102.73RRR. You may be streaming via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We're the program about all things wet and salty, marine, coastal, oceanic, whatever takes our fancy and your fancy. My name's Bron Burton. I'm Angeline Charles. And I'm Dr Beach. How are you? Very good. Good. This little chilly morning. Yeah. I'm I'm well. Good. Yeah, I I assumed you weren't asking about my morals, but rather my health. (laughs) Did I say, are you good? Uh, No. I had an English teacher who was very pedantic about that. He never answered that question. He said, I can't answer that question, but I am well. I am very pedantic as well. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Tim, very much for... uh, As always, for wonderful vital bits. Yes. Wonderful. Hey, let's go through the program. Uh, we're going to be, we've sort of got something for everyone this week. We've got a bit of community festivities. We've got some um, marine fisheries science. Uh, yes, we have Dr Giovanni Tocchini on the blower. He's going to talk to us about his work that he's doing at Warrnambool and Geelong uh, with Deakin University on aquaculture, in particular with fish. Excellent. How to feed them better and the problems we all face with feeding the world. We're doing a topsy-turvy review of what we're doing on the show today. Before Giovanni Ciccini, we're going to be joined on the phone by Mark Rodrigue from, I think, in his capacity, I'll have to ask Mark this time. He's usually Mark's or Greg from Parks Victoria, usually almost with hyphens between each of those words. <laughs> this week, he's Mark Rodrigue from... He's, he's a Bowen Hills local and uh, and very uh, important member of Friends of the Bluff down there as well. Um, so they've got their 15th Festival of the Sea down in Bowen Heads, which is a week-long festival, and today is the last day of that. There's all sorts of stuff going on today, so we're going to be speaking with Mark about that. 
And Angeline, you've brought some news in. I have. I've got some news about uh, research in the uh, West Australian oceans um, and some unusual discoveries there, and also about uh, a, ca- a catalogue of species that's been created and how many numbers they're up to. Fantastic. Uh, and then we're going to be joined in studio by our own Rex Hunter, uh, also known as Peter Taylor, when he's not being a, 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 a sea um, a, a shipwreck specialist. He's not being sea hunt. Yes. So he is uh, he, he goes by the name of Rex Hunter and because he uh, is a maritime archaeologist and specialises in shipwrecks. So he's going to be talking to us about a shipwreck off Point Cook called the Henrietta which was sunk in about 1940. I think it was in 1940. So looking forward to hearing about that. Yeah. Hmm. Weather, Dr Beach. Yeah, let's do some weather. Uh, out there today, it's going to be a top of 19, a low of 14. I reckon it was cooler than 14 this morning. And we've got a slight chance of a shower clearing by the early morning. Cloudy morning, becoming sunny during the afternoon. Wind southwest 15 to 25k per hour, turning south 20 to 30k before dawn overnight, I guess. Tomorrow's going to be a top of 23, partly cloudy. Tuesday, 26. Wednesday, 26. Thursday, 27. Possible showers on each of those days during the week. So, yeah, mid to high 20s and then dropping back down to about 18 degrees before the weekend. Um, It's going to be... okay. let's look at the tides. If you're getting out on the water, it's a low tide. Well, it was low tide about 3.30 this morning at the heads. And it's going to be... No, sorry, that was in town. Um, It's going to be a low tide at about 12.30 today at the heads. Nice week coming up. Uh, Yeah, it is looking good. Yeah. And we had a nice little sprinkle of rain last night. I enjoyed that. <laughs> nice bit of surprise. Did you get your washing in? Did I get my washing in? Um, my washing's always in. <laughs> I, I live in a um, block of flats where we, right. it's always a bun fight for the... For the clothesline. For the clothesline outside, so it's always <laughs> inside. Hey, uh, we've got some time for a bit of news. Who wants to go first? Do you want to go, Dr Beach? Uh, yeah, I've got a pretty interesting one here. It's about squid. Well, we all know that squid and octopuses are very, very smart animals, and it turns out that a bit of genomic work, so looking at their DNA and all that kind of stuff, is perhaps providing a clue to that. This is a paper that appeared in eLife about a week ago. This is one of the new online journals. And what they've been looking at is... Well, first of all, just I just want to do this briefly. So we know that genes are on DNA and that genes make proteins in all organisms, bacteria, us, fish, the works. In between genes or DNA and protein, there is this other nucleic acid that's pretty similar to DNA, which is called RNA. RNA is kind of like the interpreter between genes and proteins. And usually if you've got, let's say we've got 30,000 genes identified in a genome, say in us, then we might have, well, we will have about 30,000 proteins made from that. So you get one gene in DNA makes one protein. In the middle bit, the RNA that I was talking about, you can have what's called RNA editing, which happens very, well, not too much in most organisms. And that When you do get that RNA editing, then you can change the number of proteins that you're making from a single gene. Anyway, it turns out from some people who have been working in Israel and other parts of the world, like most good scientific work, it's a big collaboration through lots of different groups, they have shown that you get 
what's called RNA editing happening en masse in squid and octopuses. So from having one gene, you can actually make several different proteins out of that. And this is a particularly prevalent, they've shown, in the squid and octopus nervous system. And this might go some way to explaining why these organisms are pretty bloody smart. They can do all sorts of things. We've talked about this from time to time on this program, um, and I think people might realise that just from reading the general media, that these guys are, are really smart organisms. And it turns out that this might be a clue as to why they are doing this. So they can respond very... They can change the proteins that they have very quickly. They've got kind of a malleable genome, mm. a genome that has more potential to do stuff. I was um, going to say, would you call it that they, it makes them genetically flexible? It does make them genetically flexible, yes. Yeah. So, and, and they have to respond very quickly in kind of a lifetime mm. span to different environments. And they can do that by making more different proteins, and these proteins will be doing all sorts of jobs at work, particularly in the nervous system. Um, so that helps them get around, hunt better, do all sorts of things, escape, think smartly. Yeah, and I'm thinking whether uh, is there a link, and I'm jumping now to a different species, but with cuddles, the way that they quickly change their colours when they need to, whether there's maybe some link to that as well, because it's such a unique thing that they do. Possibly. Um, it's actually not... I mean, they do change their colours. That's with another thing called melanophores, so they yep. can change the, the pigments just under their skin really quickly. But a lot of fish can do that too. Mm, true. But cuttlefish, yeah, do do it. Spectacularly. Spectacularly. <laughs> yeah. But it's more to do with um, responding to new environments really rapidly and being able to exploit those mm. is what we suspect at the moment. Pretty cool. It is very cool. Did you see, um, and I'm kind of I'm jumping now to something that I saw recently in on the YouTubes, was uh, this little bit of footage of someone who was doing some rock pool rambling and saw a, an octopus jump out of, uh, yeah, Nerida's, thank you, Nerida, <laughs> Nerida's panelling for us today. She saw it. Um, an octopus jumping out of a rock pool and grabbing a crab that just happened to be walking past. <laughs> Literally th- th- catapulted itself onto dry land, grabbed this, this very big crab. It wasn't just a little crab. It was a huge crab and then kind of dragged it back into the water. The funniest bit was the commentary from the person who was taking the footage. They were like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then some. <laughs> I'll find that and I'll stick that on our Facebook page. It's worth having on the Radio Marinara Facebook page, I think. <laughs> we're up to 636 likes on our Facebook page. I reckon this bit of footage alone might get us to 1,000. It's pretty cool. <laughs> now, each and every year since 2000, the people of the Bellarine pause for a week in March and celebrate links to the sea through a diversity of our environment, history, arts, culture and lifestyle. This event we've all come to know very fondly as the Festival of the Sea. It's a wonderful community event that showcases local musical talent, art, craft, food and wine and knowledge of the sea and the coastline. The festival's been operating since 2000. It's free and it's jam-packed with fun activities. To tell us what's been going on all week and what's happening today, we're welcoming uh, Mark Rodriguez back to Triple R. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, um, Marinara listeners. Hey, well, we, we usually introduce you as Mark Rodriguez from Parks Victoria, but this week you're Mark Rodriguez, Bellarine local. Uh, Bellarine local. I'm actually the uh, last one to put my hand in my pocket, so I'm actually the president of the festival. Ah. <laughs> it's it's uh, sort of a bit a daunting task, but we're here. We've arrived. We've been having a wonderful week, and uh, certainly for people who are looking for something to do on a on a sort of a slightly chillier Sunday where you're not going out storefront or something, we'll come down and check out what's going on at the festival of the sea. And uh, how's it all going down there at the moment? It's um... well, well. Um, 
Tom. It's a little bit of organised chaos at the moment. We've got people turning up that we weren't expecting in terms of uh, some of the events, but that's all good. We've accommodated everybody. Uh, we've managed to find the right power leads. We've got three-phase power now for the uh, for the PA system. Everything is happening and it's all good. It's one of those big um, big festival challenges where you do you feel like you're standing in one in front in front of one of those tennis ball machines and the tennis balls are just coming at you. <laughs> oh, I don't know if it's quite that bad, but no, it's, look, it's, it's, it's diverse and that's, I guess, one of the great things about it is the fact that there is so much happening. We've got from a whole range of environmental expo sort of things happening over on one side of the bridge. Uh, we've got a we've got a, a continuous music program happening right throughout the day. We've got uh, a special space re- uh, reflecting one of our uh, well-loved and unfortunately um, now deceased uh, poets of the town, a gentleman by the name of John Green. Uh, there's a special John Green memorial space for pop-up performances, art, poetry, and a whole range of other wonderful things that will be happening throughout the day. And then over where I'm standing at the moment, I'm in the middle of the kids' zone. You can probably hear hammers banging and uh, kids squealing and all that sort of stuff. So there's a whole range of stuff happening for the little ones. Um, and, yeah, it's it's all good. I gather the hammers aren't actually banging on the kids and that's why they're squealing. <laughs> no, that's the, uh, that's the tent poles going in. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all sorts of stuff going on. You've got arts activities, science activities, but there's stuff been happening all week too, hasn't there? Yeah, and look, it's, it's something most people sort of associate the festivals to say with the Sunday program, which is certainly the big, uh, big draw card and where probably get most of our visitors. But, look, it is a program that does run for a week. Um, it's got a very strong uh, environmental, particularly, obviously, sea or marine focus. We've had some fantastic stuff happening starting all the way back to Tuesday night with um, uh, family science night at the primary school. We managed to uh, get a, get something like uh, 45, 50, uh, 50 uh, the grade 3 kids there with their mums and dads for a, for a wonderful evening of sort of seaweeds and uh, marine food chains and uh, uh, games looking at sort of that, what sort of weird object on the beach do you find sort of stuff. So some real, real good quality family science um, happening that night. Um, uh, on Wednesday, most glorious low tide, fantastic. I think it was about a point oh oh something or other. It was a magnificent low tide. But we had the entire grade two uh, walk down from the school uh, to their local uh, marine sanctuary, the beautiful Bowen Bluff Marine Sanctuary for a rock pool ramble. Oh wow! And that was look, that was just sensational. And again, had a lot of mums and dads come along to support that one. And you know, just a beautiful, uh, beautiful morning to be out there. And so important to connect our kids with their their own local parks, their own marine environments, whether it's the estuary or in this particular case, the marine sanctuary. It's such a such a great thing to be able to you know, build that relationship from a really early age. And hopefully, that's something those kids will take through for the rest of their lives. And uh, I saw on the program you've had estuary canoeing. We did have estuary canoeing. Um, that's something that John and I were uh, uh, sort of ran together sort of an e- on the evening. On the Wednesday night, we took a few canoes out and, uh, uh, again, a wonderful and enthused group of people to check out mangroves at high tide at this particular time. It was a bit later in the day, and uh, we managed to get, uh, get about 25 people out on water have a look at in amongst the mangroves, have a look at some of the migratory birds that are sort of flock, uh, getting ready to fly on their way back to Siberia at the moment. We've got a fantastic uh, wetland area right next to Bowen Heads, the Lake Connawari uh, Reserve, um, which is a really important part of the, uh, the, Ramsar, the Port Phillip Ramsar side. So, yeah, managed to get a few people out there talking about those sort of things. Um, and then on the Thursday, look, again, more program happening uh, primarily uh, focused around the primary school, uh, some giant marine puppets, uh, again, uh, with a very much a local flavour, uh, one of which was a, a very large blue grope, a stunning, stunning piece of work it was uh, that happened uh, through a workshop at the school. And, uh, look, it's, it's just been going off, as I said, since Tuesday night. Fantastic. Now, I was um, reading about uh, green drinking. 
Green drinking, ah, right. Well, green drinking is actually something I might uh, might pass over to John Duffy, who's actually the president of the festival, uh, president, sorry, of the Friends of the Bluff, who are one of the key contributors to, to the festival, and someone who, again, is not unfamiliar to uh, Marinara listeners, the, the illustrious uh, Mr John Duffy. So if that's OK with you, Bron, I might get back to hammering pegs and uh, <laughs> sorting out ponies and <laughs> doing all sorts of other stuff. But the last word from me is, you know, if you're not doing anything, come down to Bowen Heads. We've got a fantastic program happening right through the day till... I think the music doesn't finish until 6 o'clock tonight, so it's free for everybody. Um, there's the uh, world-famous duck race happening at about 4.30, but uh, if you're not doing anything, let's get, get your butts down here because it's all good. It's always a fantastic festival. I was having a look through the lineup of the live music, and without wanting to single anyone out, I noticed that Tiny Giants are playing, and um, I believe there's Sarah Carroll and Chris Wilson's kids uh, playing so in that, that band. That would be right. Uh, in fact, uh, that's an- another thing. Yesterday we had some performances on the main street, just a Year or so, but we had pop up performances of Chris and Sarah in the main street yesterday. Uh, also, had the disco rockers with the wonderful Jeff Ragless that are performing. And last night, there was a sustainability dinner. As I said, it's just going on. People can check out the whole program from uh, our website at festivalofthesea.org.au. Fantastic. Hey, we're starting to get a fair bit of wind noise in there, Mark, but we'll pop Duffy on just for a sec and, um, and have. I'll, I'll move behind a bush then. I think that's probably a good idea. <laughs> okay. Good on you, Ron. We'll Talk catch you. Yeah, catch you soon. Bye. Okay. Hello, Ron. Hey, John. How are you doing? I, I remember doing an interview with you in a in a hailstorm from the top of the bluff a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. I remember that too. I remember it very well. This is, uh, this is a bit calmer today. Yeah, it's sounding pretty blowy, but um, but we, the wind is going to hold off, and uh, it is a wonderful day that's uh, that's shaping up for you guys down there. Tell us tell us a bit about green drinking. I'm intrigued. Is this combining Festival of the Sea and St Patrick's Day, maybe? Um, no, we actually finished up calling it Rockpool Happy Hour. <laughs> um, and uh, we, we, <laughs> we just went down to the local bowler and we put on happy hour for two hours and we had, a, Mark just mentioned, pop-up speakers. So we just had a couple of pop-up speakers talking about things environmental from the area. And uh, we had about 60 people turn up. And the lesson, I think, is that environment activities go so much better with cheap alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> not at nine o'clock in the morning, though. But um, but that's but that sounds interesting. So, in what in what way? I am I, I am I am close to a drink. Let me tell you, um, it was it was just. A, it, I think one of the things. We, this is our fifteenth festival, and so for people like myself who have been kind of organising activities for fifteen years, coming up with something a bit different, a bit new that that for no other reason might keep me a bit more interested but just a, a different way of getting some some really good messages about what lives and hangs around Bowen Heads um, so it's just a, another uh, it was just another way and it, it actually seemed quite successful and now it seems as though the uh, the order is to organise Rockpool Happy Hour a few more times a year that it was so successful so that was great excellent well keep us keep us posted if you're planning on having any more Rockpool happy hours let us know and we'll um of course we're we're always uh, encouraging people to drink responsibly and we know that you guys do down there and and of course being friends of the bluff you take extremely good care of your local environment <laughs> actually if you if you ever want to come down and talk about limpets at, at uh, Rockpool happy hour uh, i can book you in do you know what i'd love to let's talk about this off air and um, organize the time to do that <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring down my old hydrophone. I actually don't know where it is. Oh, 
cool. Yes. Anyway, I'll, I'll talk to you about that another time as well. Hey, that, that all sounds great. We're going to wrap it up here, John, but um, yes. just a, a final plug for people to get down there today and, and get involved in Festival of the Sea. You don't need for it to be 30 degrees and sunny. In fact, I actually find it's often better when it's not. You don't have that the pressure of the, the belting sun sort of coming down. Uh, it, it's nice walking around under a bit of cloud cover and it's always, you know, you've got that bracing wind to make you realise that you're alive. <laughs> Yeah, actually, the, the wind's not too bad at the moment. So it's, it's you know, and the estuary is always a postcard. It's it's absolutely beautiful again at the moment. Um, and you're right. The only time we we ever lost the festival was on a 46 degree day. So, um, we've never we've never been rained out. God God help us. But it'll be good. So yeah, I can just reinforce what Mark said. There's uh, heaps of great activities happening down here. Some fantastic music. Lots of events and things. Brilliant. Hey, thanks, John, and thanks to Mark as well. And have an awesome day. And uh, yeah, I will give you a call about that because it'll be good fun to come down. Love to see it. All right, terrific. Have a good day. Thanks, John. Bye. I'm a bit worried about people slipping on those rocks around the rock pools with the cheap alcohol. Yeah, I'm sure. Those <laughs> I'm, guys are seasoned veterans, um, not so much at the drinking, but uh, but they, they, I reckon they could walk around in the dark and they would know every single <laughs> rock in every single rock pool and every piece of that coastline. So, yes, Bowen Heads Festival of the Sea and get down there today. It's a, it's a great event. We actually did a live broadcast from there a few years ago. I think it was for their 10th anniversary, so it would have been five years ago. And, uh, and I highly recommend getting down there. We're going to turn our attentions to some of the news of the week of the month, the stuff of that's the floating week. around. Yeah. Of the week. Yeah, Excellent. of the week. You know, over in Western Australia, the CSIRO and the Institute of Marine Sciences in Italy, in fact, are doing some uh, underwater uh, discovery or, or um, expedition of the deep sea there. Uh, and they and they're hoping to uh, it goes for twelve days and so far they've found um, a six hundred meter sheer cliff drop off drop off and really amazing structures apparently mountains the size of uh, Mount Kosciuszko so really incredible um, scenery and and lots of species that are new um, and the most probably thing that they were probably the happiest about finding is a two hundred thousand uh, dollar underwater ROV that's been missing for two oh, years. Really? <laughs> I thought you were going to say a very expensive watch that somebody dropped off. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. Um, so it's been about seven hundred meters down on the on the sea floor in a canyon near Rottnest Island, and uh, they lost it two years ago. Uh, so I'm sure somebody at the university that does accounting is breathing a deep sigh of relief right about now. <laughs> Well, I guess they can strike that one off, yeah. whether or not it's... Um, is it sal- salvageable? Well, they're going to go back at the end of the expedition and use the ROV they've got going to pick this one up and right. bring it back. Stick it on a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> whether it works or not is another story, but uh, they did. They were able to sort of speak to it acoustically, so they knew where it was, Yeah. but um, were, weren't able to get back to it to pick it up. So thankfully no one else was out there, you know, like those prospectors going around with their metal detectors and didn't pick it up, so it's it's uh, waiting. They need to get that gear down into the southern Indian Ocean and look for um, a better airplane. Well, it's it's not too far, well, it's a big way from that, but not too far away from that, sort of roughly in the same area. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I was going to talk about was the uh, World Register of Marine Species, mm. and they've put out a media release talking about their, that they found 1,400 new species this year. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. They're saying virtually a species a week uh, is discovered. Is this a global register? Uh, it's a yeah, it's a world register, right? And uh, there's two hundred and twenty-eight thousand four hundred and forty-four types of uh, 
inhabitants, so species registered on that register. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that they've had to cross off about 190,000 <laughs> above that figure because they were double-ups. Ah. <laughs> Small bit of inaccuracy there, about half the register, but anyway. Is this things which might be the same organism but have different names? Uh, I think that and say like a they had like a sea snail that had been registered 50 different, yeah, 50 different times with 50 different names, but right. just discovered it's the same species. And I just thought that that would lead on to talk about, I mean, they sort of highlight this sea dragon that was found, which was an amazing sort of discovery that after so many, you know, 150 years, they found another species. But... In fact, that species uh, someone had in a collection since 1919. You know, oh, this, this ruby sea dragon yeah. that's been found? Yeah. Um, and largely it's not been discovered by us because it lives in depths of greater than 50 metres. So, mm. um, and it's red, so it blends in uh, to the environment down there, which is basically quite dark and red. And um, But someone had found it in 1919. It washed up in the shore in WA and they put it in the collection but didn't realise that it was a different animal until... Uh, they found they were doing a DNA test and discovered that they had a different species and then called up every animal that was found or sea dragon below 50 metres and discovered there are actually uh, two other spe- uh, animals that have been in the collections. So two other species? Uh, no, two two other ruby sea dragons. Right. But we've been having them. They've been held in collections since 1919. Oh. We just didn't know they were a different species. And I guess that's how things were done, particularly back then. Yeah. Well, unless you were DNA back then, so... Yeah. Yeah. But but in terms of collections, too, that's just... It happened on a much broader scale. I suppose it still does. But in terms of people sort of finding things and just keeping them in their private collections rather than necessarily going and registering them with the museum. Oh, no, it had been in the museum collection. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, it had oh. been there, but no-one had looked at it closely enough to realise it was actually a different species. Ah. Yeah, so highlights the value of these collections uh, and why we need to have them. And what might be hidden in them, but yes. going back and going over what you've got in your collection and, and retesting them. And the other thing I'd, I thought I'd talk very quickly about is the Abbott Point dredge plan. Mm-hmm. You know that last year we spoke a lot about the dredging that was going on in the Port of Gladstone and the fish were being... There were fish sick and animals dying. Uh, and I'm not sure there was any conclusive evidence that it was the dredging, but it was all pointing that way. So the Queensland Premier's made an announcement this week that the dredge spoil uh, from the, the dredging, and it's um, quite a large volume, it's uh, 3 million cubes, I think, it's very large, um, will be going to um, be disposed of on, on land. So right. it's no longer going to be um, dispersed at sea or even put on a, a nearby wetland, which was um, plan B. So thankfully they've decided that's no longer a good idea. Uh, so the fishing sectors are really pleased about that and no doubt the community that um, the dredge spoil will no longer be going out into the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park and threatening the reef. Um, however, I suppose the next big step is looking at the a detailed design for the Bund and um, wherever they're going to... Dis- and the disposal site, just to make sure that uh, there's no leakage... And also looking at the the dredging method so that when the the, uh, cutter suction dredge 
uh, takes out the spoil. There's a lot of water that that goes else, you know, that spills out into the ocean. Just making sure that's treated as well. Angeline, do you know? Is, so is Abbott Point definitely going ahead? I mean, it was my understanding that there was still a little bit of a question mark over it with respect to whether the people who want to mine the Galilee Basin actually want to go ahead with that with the drop in price of coal. So I'm not aware of that. Uh, whether they they still want to go ahead or not. Okay. I, it, from reading the media articles, it's full steam ahead. Yeah, I thought it was all still full full steam ahead. Right, okay. Mm. Perhaps it's just my misunderstanding. Yeah. Uh, we now have about 7 billion people on Earth and we're projected to get to 9 billion in years to come at least and of course we've got to feed all those people and one of the ways in which we've been doing that in the recent past and it's becoming uh, much more prevalent is to use agriculture, that is to, to farm fish as well as other marine species. There are problems associated with that. There are both local problems with environmental problems and also there's the, the nutritional aspect too. How do we feed those those fish that we're farming? And we're joined on the phone now by Dr Giovanni Ticini, who's at Deakin University at Warrnambool, who is an aquaculture expert and researcher. Hi, Gio. How are you going? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. I'm joined in the studio here by Angeline and by Bron Burton. Um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what are the main problems, just very briefly, because we've talked about this quite a bit on the program, but the main problems with with aquaculture, and then perhaps I'd like to move on to some some good news stories that I think you might have for us. Okay. Uh, Thanks very much for this question. I there are, of course, some problems coming with this new industry. <clears throat> and I guess the major ones are two different faults. One is about public per- perception of the industry itself, which is quite often misinformed. And then from a technical point of view, the biggest issue is about the feed, so the so-called aqua feed. And that is because historically in aqua feed, we have been using fish meal and fish oil, which are marine-derived uh, raw material, so fish are cooked in the wild, transformed into a meal and oil, and then used back as a, as a feed for farm fish. I have read somewhere that 50% of the world's fish oil is actually used to feed fish. Yeah, that's in, uh, incorrect, because I think we reached the 90%. Wow. But wow. the things is also changing, and that's in- interesting. Uh, the history of fish oil, and I've been doing some work on this, basically the amount, the total amount of fish oil which has been produced, harvested from the ocean, is about one million tons, and always been the same since after the Second World War. Initially, it was used for industrial purposes, because it was a very cheap oil nobody wanted to use. Then in the 70s, it was used by the livestock industry, and then aquaculture boomed, and aquaculture started using the lot up to 90%. The problem now is that there is the pharmaceutical or nutraceutical industry, which is fish oil tablets, and they actually start buying more. So now the share of aquaculture is going down. The problem for aquaculture is the price. The price, because of the production is constant, but the demand is rising. The price of fish oil now is over three and a half thousand dollars per ton. And less than two years ago was $500. You can imagine for the industry it's impossible to keep growing like that with this kind of cost. So it's very much a, an economic problem more than an environmental problem. So people are turning to other sources of food for the fish. Am, am I correct in thinking that? Yes. That's, of course, that's 
what we are doing, and that's also one of the areas of my research, is because not really of the environmental issue, because as I said, the amount of fish oil and fish meat produced is constant and is sustainably managed. It's because of the price. So, and you have increased demand of feed, and we need to feed something to these farm fish. So we need to include other raw materials, which are not normally commonly present in, in, the, in the marine food chain, and we need to give that to farm fish. So we start using, of course, agricultural products like soy-derived products or canola and so forth. And also, increasingly, we use byproducts from the food industry. Um, one of the main reasons that people eat salmon and oily fish, and a lot of that comes from, from aquaculture, is to, to increase the, the intake of omega-3 fatty acids, which we all know are good for us. Is this turning to alternatives to fish oil to actually feed the farmed fish, is this having an effect on the level of the good oils that we're getting in the fish? Yes, unfortunately this has a direct effect. That's because the good oil, the long-chain omega-3, that you find in farm fish is fundamentally for the largest part coming from the feed itself. So when we were able to put a high amount of fish oil in the aqua feed, we had a very high amount of long-chain omega-3 in the feed and therefore a very high amount of long-chain omega-3 in the fillet of farm fish. Now, of course, because of this problem and the limited amount available and the increasing price, the amount of fish oil and therefore the amount of long-chain omega-3 going into the feed is reducing and therefore also the amount of long-chain omega-3 we find in the farm fish uh, fillet is reducing. And I guess we should remind ourselves that in the wild, so wild-caught fish and salmon being an example, they get their long-chain omega-3 fatty acids from from phytoplankton, don't they? Correctly. Primarily from the base of the food chain, they go up. That's particularly in the marine environment. In the freshwater environment, it's a little bit different. So the fish themselves, they also have a good capability of bioconverting, bioelongating shorter omega-3 to the long one. But an important point, and this is what is part of the problem, is the the information we provide to the public. So many people now are worried about the low amount of long-chain omega-3 in farm fish. Well, the point is that there is less compared to what we had in the past. Yes, but the reality is that Farm fish is still by far the best source of omega-3. So compared to a wild fish, you have at least three to four times much higher amount in a farm fish. And that's because farm fish are normally a little bit fatter. So they contain more fat and more of the, this good long-chain omega-3. To give you an idea, the Australian farm Atlantic salmon is contain about 1,000 milligram of EPA and DHA, which are the good long-chain omega-3. It was about 2,000, so it was about twice in the past, but if you buy whatever wild fish, like snapper, or it's less than 300 milligram. So we are talking about three times higher farm fish compared to wild fish. What about if you compare a wild, if you take the same species, so say a farmed salmon compared to a wild salmon? The situation is very similar. Apart that the case of wild Atlantic salmon is quite unusual, you can find on the at the supermarket, I guess, unless you live in Alaska or I don't know, <clears throat> or maybe in Scotland, it's not a very common. So it's difficult to make this comparison. But for example, here we can compare baramandi. We can find easily wild baramandi, a farm baramandi. And as well, if you look at the percentage value of fatty acids, so from a percentage point of view, the wild fish seems to contain more because that is a percentage of fatty acid on total fatty acids. But when you look at the milligram, and I often replay, uh, say quite often to everybody, we don't eat percentage, we eat milligram of fatty acid. If you look at milligram of fatty acid, the wild 
Baramandi contains a third of the long-chain omega-3 that you can find in the farms, Baramandi. Yeah, that's all fascinating. I wonder if you could just spend a few minutes now talking about the, the work that you and your group are doing at Warrnambool trying to well, d- develop alternative food sources. Yes, so thank you very much for this question. So along those lines that I've discussed before, this is the, main, the starting point of my work, and <clears throat> the work of my team has been in different directions. One is to actually try to see if we can exploit the capability of fish to bioconvert short omega-3, like the one we can find in canola or linseed. So there's abundance of these, but they are, they are omega-3, but not the good one. They are not bad. They are just not yet the good one. So one is try to make sh- to exploit the capability of fish to bioconvert this into the long one, into the long and more unsaturated fatty acid. And that's very much about cellular physiology, try to understand the sort, uh, series of enzymatic reaction, how they work and how we can speed them up. And we achieve some decent result, still is not a solution of the problem. I mean, we managed to increase the amount of long-chain omega-3 you can find in a fish, which is fed without any fish oil, which is a good achievement, but still not, of course, a solution. And then I'm also working a lot now with the industry, and because I like to have to, my research to be also realistic and timely and pertinent to what is the actual problem. That's and, right, yeah, which is always we, a good thing. And so we at the moment also doing a lot of work on trying to... Uh, value-adding or increase the, the possible use of byproducts which are normally not used or they are just wasted, yeah. and how we can add value to these pro- products and include them in aquafeed so that we can achieve, basically we can get two birds with one stone. We reduce the amount of products that goes into the landfill and we provide a good healthy diet for farm fish. And, and, and those byproducts, are they byproducts from sort of land-based agriculture? Yes, and primarily I'm working on the animal industry, so all the, let's say, the leftover from the abattoir industry, yeah. and how we can increase the use of these byproducts instead of going to the landfill, as I say, I think is a, is a really waste of precious uh, raw material and nutrients, and we need to make the most out of that, and fish are very good fish, particularly farm fish are carnivorous fish, and so for them it's much closer to the natural approach to it byproduct of the animal industry compared to the byproduct of the uh, crop industry for example. That's right. Gio, we're going to have to wrap it up now, um, but thank you very much for coming on air and talking about that. I'd like to get you back um, in a couple of months' time and talk about this in much more detail, but for now, thank you very much Dr Giovanni Tocchini. Thank you very much for listening. And um, uh, From Warrnambool, and yeah, see you Gio. Cheers, bye bye. Amazing stuff. Uh, yeah, it's it is, and it's very important. Uh, they are shocking figures, but you know, we've got to feed the world. We've got to do it somehow, and we know that there are a lot of problems with agriculture, particularly in the local region with um, nutrients going into into the ocean and the surrounding areas. But globally, it's something that we really need to do. That's or right. at least chop, or chop our population down to 3 billion, which <laughs> we're not going to do. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.73 Triple R. You know where it is. Welcome, Rex Hunter. 
Oh, thanks for having me back, Bron. Good to be here. And Dr. Beach, too. Hi, Rex. How you going? Yeah, good, good, good. This is the first time we've had you back in studio for 2015? Yes, 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 yes. So, so people who are wondering who you are, you are our uh, in-house <laughs> maritime archaeology, or maritime rec, particularly Rex, aren't you? Uh, hence, vocational. Hence yeah. yeah. A vocational maritime archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a rec freak, really. And you've been doing some work on the Henrietta, I hear. Uh, yeah, the Henrietta, that's an interesting story. It was um, actually in the film Captain's Courageous, which had um, Spencer Tracy in, made in, I think, the late 1930s, mid-1930s. We need to get you on with Jeff Maynard. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> he just lives around the corner, too. I don't see. <laughs> you guys have been talking, I can tell. <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's a fascinating story, and... Um, it was uh, after it was in the film The um, Captain's Courageous. It was sold on to a to a, a sea captain called um, Pete Sawyer, and he he bought it. He married an Australian woman, um, and they decided to sail her out to Australia. So they went via South uh, South America, sailed around all all these re- through the Straits of Magellan, and all these really really dangerous bits of water. Um, got to Australia, the war, war started, and he. Um, he volunteered. He was an American uh, citizen, but volunteered and started teaching um, navigation and that that type of thing. Um, and he off- actually offered the uh, the Henrietta to um, the Australian government for use down the rip to patrol and that type of thing. Uh, from there, it uh, sat around and in uh, mid oh, yeah mid nineteen forty, it was. Um, it was more than Geelong. They were taking it up to uh, Melbourne to um, do some fit-outs and clean it up and whatever. And lo and behold, it hit Point Cook Reef. Oh, <laughs> on the way. But just after it sailed, you know, I think 10,000, 10, 15,000 miles from the other side of the world. And has this been lost and you've, you've recently found the wreck? Or well, has it been known where it is for a while and you've been exploring it? Um there's a, a local ab diver from Williamstown. He found it in um, in the mid 1960s or late late 1960s, and I met him in 1978. And uh, I said, "All these projects take a while." And he said, "Oh, there's a wreck. The wreck of the Henrietta's off uh, Point Cook. Um, this is roughly where it is." And so it took took another 20 years to actually find it. So. Wow. So all that time it's been down there. And so you were saying it was discovered in the late 60s, so you know, roughly 30 years after it sank. Yes. And, yes. Then, and then took another 10 years before you guys started talking about maybe going and having a look at yeah, it. Yeah, it was always in the back of my mind, and we finally finally got fired up. So um, Point Cook is uh, an area that's basalt, it's rich in basalt, so... We had a magnetometer that that wasn't any good. We couldn't use that. We tried it; it just went berserk every time we went out there. So, um, sorry, just just for the uninitiated, including myself. So, magnetometer is basically a big metal detector. I'm guessing. Well, more or less for for the uh, yeah for the common folk, it's called detect. <laughs> and we are all yeah, common yeah. folk. Consider me in that group. Especially detects us. anomalies in the Earth's magnetic field. Okay. So it doesn't actually detect metal; it detects the variations in the Earth's magnetic field. Right. And that gets kind of screwed up in. Bas- Basalt fields normally? Yeah, yeah, basalt and mineralised sands and all those types right. of horrible oh, okay. things. Is that because basalt's volcanic by origin? Yeah, and it's got, right. I think the iron content of it is right. just really, it yeah, drives it berserk. You can't get any decent readings. Okay, so it's just a whole bunch of white noise, basically. Yeah, basically, yep. and it's just, just a waste of time. So then we got, um, we started doing individual dives, so we go out there as a team, roughly where it was, where the uh, diver told, uh, told us to look for it do swim searches all through there. So we spent a couple more years doing that. And finally, I got a group together from 
MWV, and we started. We said it was a mile offshore, so we plotted it a mile offshore, jumped in, and we had about oh, about 20 divers just swim around all over the place. Eventually we found it. One diver one diver actually swam over it and didn't realise it was a wreck because all that's left is um, pig iron ballast, right. which, is, which they call Kentledge, and they're, they're about a metre long and by about uh, 150 or 100, 150 by 150, and there's 90 tonnes of that. So any any wooden bits have rotted away, and since the fort, since nineteen forty. Yeah, all the um, any remaining woods actually under the uh, the ballast itself. Oh, okay. Right. So there are small amount. There's fittings and nails and screws, all those types of things. So, but it's just a, a big thrill to be able to find it after all these years of searching. And what's what's also sort of touches your heart is um, Pete was flying up to uh, New South Wales to take a... He had an ear infection. He was being flown up there to um, have his his ear operated on. And the um, plane he was on actually crashed and he was killed. Oh, really? So um, they got Pete cremated him and they scattered his ashes over the site. And then, oh, just... I think it was about 10 years ago, maybe 10... Bit, bit more. His wife Dorota died as well, so they scattered her ashes over the side as well. At, at the Henrietta. Yeah, at the Henrietta. Yeah, and just recently, I was. There's um, was a guy, uh, Julius. I can't. I can't think of his surname. Yeah, um, he did died after an operation. He, he was a crewman on board, and he loved it, and he said it changed his life and for the better. So, um, I gave the position to his widow, and then they. Scattered his uh, ashes over the site too, just about a year or two ago. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ash down there at the moment. <laughs> that, that, it reminds me of the MCG when they when they open it up, you know, people walking out and dropping the ashes of their relatives who want to be spread over the MCG. Mm. Hey Rex, thanks for coming in. Oh, that's all right. It's been fascinating hearing about the Henrietta. It's yes. one of those one of those wrecks in Port Phillip Bay that doesn't sort of have a massive profile, unlike some of the others, particularly yep. with the diving diving fraternity out there. So um, we'll get you back in in about a month or so. No, no problem. Yeah. Be back. It's just a, such a great story and just it sort is. of brings a tear to my eye when I, when I think about it. You have these spectacular wrecks that <laughs> probably have got quite boring stories and you get this sort of little little wreck that no one knows about and it's got this incredible backstory yes, to it. that's it, yes. All right. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. And thanks uh, to our other guests today, Dr Giovanni Tocchini and also Mark Rodriguez and John Duthie who are down at Festival of the Scene Bowen Heads. I've put the details for that up on our Facebook page. Uh, so get down there if you possibly can. Thank you, Dr Beach. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you, Nerida. She's been panelling for us today. You can also catch Nerida on Livewire every Saturday night along with Paulie P, JK, uh, Pat and the crew. And uh, thanks to Kent. He's been out there panelling and he'll be putting his show up as a podcast. And thanks to Angeline. And thanks to Angeline. She's out of studio. Yes, thank you very much, Angeline. On next week's program, uh, Jeff Maynard's going to be in. We're going to hopefully be catching up with some people uh, from Sandcastle, um, Sandcastling Australia. So there's a professional Sandcastle makers, Dr Beach. Nice. There's been an exhibition down in Frankston uh, since December, so hopefully catching up with them. Uh, I may be doing the show solo at this stage. I'm sorry, yeah, I don't think I can join you next Sunday. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Hey, stay tuned for radiotherapy, and I will at least catch you next week. Bye for now. Triple R, Immaculate Reception.
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.